Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Kolf. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I've combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Before we get started, I have a favor to ask you. If you have not done so already, I hope you will consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to All The Wiser. Your ratings, and especially your kind reviews, go a long way in helping other podcast listeners decide if they will give us a try. And by subscribing, you will be notified every time we bring you a new story. Today's episode is a love story, and my guest is Jason Rosenthal. When Jason's wife and the mother of his three children, Amy, lay dying in her bed from ovarian cancer, she had one last secret project. Without Jason's knowledge, she wrote him a love letter in the form of a personal ad for his future wife. Ten days before her passing, the New York Times published Amy's letter titled, You May Want to Marry My Husband, and it went viral around the world. Today, we talk about love and loss and how knowing your time is limited can lead to the best conversations of your life, the ones we should all be having. Amy's ultimate act of love was giving Jason the permission and blank space to build a life beyond her. We also talk candidly about the complexities of falling in love while simultaneously speaking on stages and writing a book about loving Amy. Here's today's interview with the very wise, thoughtful, and romantic Jason Rosenthal. Jason, welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you so much for having me. And I have to share with our listeners that it's a bit of a full circle moment. Eight years ago, I worked with Amy, your wife, who we're going to talk about today. And at the time, your dog, Cougar, were in a book that I helped create called A Letter to My Dog, where people wrote a letter to their dog. And we had this incredible photographer shoot the photographs, which was on the page next to it. And Amy was a part of that project. We discovered her through her beautiful writing and words. And when my associate producer forwarded me your name in your book as a suggestion, it gave me chills because I had just connected with Amy and we had stayed in touch a bit. So I'm glad that I knew Amy and Cougar and that now all these years later, I get to have a conversation with you. I remember the picture so very well. And I, you know, I've looked back on it many, many times. So 
That was a wonderful project. And it, it was just a perfect picture. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> it was. And Amy was the, was the perfect person, as was Cougar, a yeah. four-legged person to be a part of it. We loved including them. Thank you. So today we're going to talk about the arc of your love story with Amy and where you are in your life today and really the story of loving her and losing her. I always like to start, Jason, by having people explain to me the backdrop of their childhood. What can you share with me about your childhood and your experience growing up? Basically, I was born and raised here in Chicago. I had such an incredible influence by my mother. You know, she was a very strong woman. She was liberal in her philosophies about most things and let me have the independence to be pretty free throughout my childhood. We grew up in a uh, really loving and close family unit. And eventually, as a young man, you met Amy. Tell me the story of the beginning of your relationship and what you remember about meeting her in those early days. Yeah, so I... There was a gentleman whose name was, uh, we call Uncle John. And Uncle John was my father-in-law, Paul's best childhood buddy. And when I was in law school studying for the bar exam, John called me and said, hey, there's this wonderful woman. She's an advertising copywriter living in San Francisco, but her family's from here and she's moving back to Chicago. And you should give her a call. And uh, I had never been on a blind date before and I was pretty entrenched in studying for the bar exam. But I decided to take him up on that on that opportunity, and I did. And Amy famously has written, she says she knew she wanted to marry me after that meal. Um, and it took me about a year to come to that realization. And what are the things that made you fall in love with Amy and, in fact, agree that you two should be married? Hmm. Amy was very quickly someone who, I fell for her primarily because of her infectious ability to enjoy life. You know, she was enthusiastic about almost everything. And that enthusiasm spilled into all aspects of her life, including our life together as we started to get to know each other. We quickly did some interesting and fun things without really even knowing each other that well. We started a couple of small businesses, you know, that we had fun doing. And yes, she was just uh, very, very easy to fall in love with. So you fall in love. There is the early days of your relationship and newly married. What are the next chapters for you and Amy starting a family? And if you can paint the picture of sort of the life that you created together and the type of family you were and the type of parents. What I say is primarily that raising a family with Amy was fun. And I know that's sort of simplistic, but she really made raising three children, which is not the easiest thing to do when they're two years apart and we have six years of diapers going on, you know, just a fun experience to to raise kids with her. She had a unique way of attaching to each one of them and getting to know each one of them and enjoying each one of them. And we together as a team I think, really supported each other in, in ways that is not as common as I have learned, you know, marriages exist in. So we, we had a great time with each other and constantly reminded the kids that 
you know, we came first and we always dedicated time to be just Amy and Jason. And that really helped our relationship and helped our family life as well, because it made coming together as a unit that much more exciting and fun. Where were you in your life when Amy was diagnosed with cancer? So leading up to that time, what was the snapshot of of where you guys were in your life together? Amy was out of town on a business trip. And she was in D.C. And she called me and said, you know, I'm, I'm feeling something really unusual in my stomach. And I called my my family doctor and she said, you should have your husband pick you up from the airport and take you to the emergency room. Now, this is from a woman who rarely complained of anything physical in the 26 years that we were married together. So I knew something was up, but I never in a million years anticipated what it ultimately was. But the timing was such that we were literally, and I mean literally, when Amy was to return from that business trip, when she opened that door, we were supposed to enter the empty nesting phase of our life that we had been so looking forward to. You know, it was uh, our youngest, our daughter, Paris, had just gone off to college. And it was our time to explore and to appreciate each other in a new way and really do a lot of things that were on our lists to be together again, you know, as a couple. And that was cut short by that visit to the emergency room when we learned that we better get that scan to check out what was going on with Amy that we later learned was ovarian cancer. What was on the list? What were you dreaming up for for that time? Amy had some professional goals to move to perhaps another city and apply for some fellowships that she was interested in doing. We wanted to, you know, live in another city for the first time ever. We had pretty much been here in Chicago our entire lives. And to travel and to learn and explore this this big world that we live in together. And some specific things like going to Marfa, Texas and going to Burning Man and things like that. (laughs) I love it. It's a yeah. bucket list. So that is not how that period of time unfolded. No. What do you remember about the day of the diagnosis? Well, I mean, first of all, utter and complete shock, you know. But having said that, as devastating as it was, we really, perhaps out of a little bit of ignorance at the time, were focused on okay, let's get going. Let's get this thing taken care of. Let's start the treatment and there'll be a brighter day. And so that's really what we did. You know, Amy, as I discussed a bit in my book, was the queen of making lists. And we together just sort of made a list of all the things we needed to start to do. And um, yeah, it, it was it was unbelievably devastating. And, you know, the thought of telling our kids was something else altogether that was just... Uh, Something I don't wish, obviously, on on anyone ever having to do. What was the specific diagnosis and prognosis? Uh, Well, it was ovarian cancer, perhaps in the fallopian tube. We weren't exactly sure. But, uh, you know, the prognosis was, unfortunately, as I've learned since then, having started a foundation in Amy's honor, part of the mission of which is to focus on early detection of ovarian cancer. But unfortunately, the prognosis, the statistical prognosis is is not good when you discover ovarian cancer in its late stages, which is what happened with Amy. Late stage detection of ovarian cancer, unfortunately, has a statistical survival rate, a five-year survival rate of 20%. 
Whereas early detection, that number jumps way, way, way up to 90%. So she goes in thinking it's a stomach ache or appendicitis and finds out late stage ovarian cancer and yes. you may not be alive in, in five years. How did your relationship change at that moment? Well, um, you know, my focus became singular and that was to love Amy and to make her as comfortable throughout this process as we possibly could. Our relationship, that which was already so loving and strong, only got stronger and, and more loving, if that's possible, because we had this opportunity to really get intimate in a way that was much more intense, obviously, as you're facing the end of one's life and you have that time to talk to each other about issues that are so important to one another. And it's been part of my mission over the last three years as I've begun to speak publicly about these issues to you know, encourage people to talk about intimate things earlier when you're healthy and younger. It really does amazing things for the person who survives a potential loss. You know, it's something I'm so curious about. My father-in-law died of cancer a year and a half ago and very close with him and my mother-in-law. And she said to me, it was the best conversations of their life. And I am fascinated by your, you know, why, first of all, we don't have those conversations because we don't know when our journey together will end. But what are the specific conversations we should be having and why? Yeah, I mean, first of all, we in this country do not feel comfortable speaking about death. And that's just a fact. And I'm doing a very small part uh, as a messenger to say that uh, that isn't the right approach, in my opinion, that we, we do need to talk about those things earlier when we're younger and healthier. Because as I said, it helps that transition and the people who are left behind. But the conversations range, to be honest with you. You know, they they could be unique. Like in my situation, I have three children and I was really just so overwhelmed and, and confused as to how I was going to proceed as a single parent. You know, and when Amy just basically looked at me and said, you know, Jason, you're an amazing dad. You have such a great connection with each one of these kids. You can do it. And that was huge, you know, because she, as I said earlier, was such an incredible parent. I thought, how am I going to step into those shoes and, 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 you know, sort of do my part to fill in some of those spaces that she just so intuitively knew how to fill in. And then, you know, we talked about some practical things, which I think are important. What do you want to have happen at your service? You know, do you want a religious component? Do you want music contained in your service? If so, do you have anything you want us to play? Do you have people in mind that you might want to have speak, you know, on your behalf? And then there are other issues that I've learned since then, which is sort of these tie-up things that people get in, entangled with. And that what I mean by that is, are there any relationships that have been so contentious in your life that you just have left them behind because they're so difficult, but that you would regret not at least confronting, you know? So that's a start for sure. Did you experience a deeper level of presence with one another and life in general? That's an excellent question. And yes, the answer is for sure. I mean, you know, one of the things that Amy was so gifted at and one of her TEDx talks spoke about those little moments in between, you know, that we that we sort of walk through life sort of, you know, not really paying attention to. 
she paid attention to those moments always, you know, and so she uh, helped me in the essay that she wrote in the Modern Love column that went crazy, crazy viral by, by giving me that gift of a blank space at the end of that piece. I have used that as a metaphor to move forward in my life and really try so hard to live my life a little bit more like Amy did, which is to appreciate those moments that you just asked me about. And yes, we definitely spoke a lot about that. And it really has guided me moving forward to try, really try each day to appreciate how lucky I am to be here on this planet in the short amount of time that's clearly meant for us. And we never know when that's going to end. When your wife, the love of your life and the mother of your three children is dying in front of you, what are the layer of the fears? Because I imagine there's the fear of your children not having a mother, the fear of her not being with you. So I'm, I'm interested in how you experience that, not just as a husband, but to kind of get in your mind about what that was like for you at that time. Physically, end of life is just overwhelmingly scary, you know, because something else takes over the physical body, which is from a combination of you know, one literally fading away, but also partly the medication that's administered to ease the pain. But really, it's thinking about how I was going to move forward was overwhelming and daunting. But really, I was so laser focused on helping Amy transition in the most peaceful and loving and most beautiful way possible that those issues didn't really whack me over the head until after she died. So the gravity of the loss happens for you after. Yes. Yes, you know the the first the first days, months, year are literally almost a blur for me only because I'm so I I don't know how to really put one foot in front of the other, you know, I'm just devastated with grief. Even though, you know, after Amy's essay came out, and she expressly gave me permission to move forward. It was a great, great, great gift that did ultimately help me so much in moving forward. But still, you know, those final moments are memories that you have for so very long. In fact, I never thought that those would leave me. You know, the moments of her literally fading physically and me having to take care of her up until her last breath, those are images that really get stuck in your mind. You have shared some of those flashpoints, the visual screens or flashes, if you will, of her passing and the moments after that for me brought me to tears because it made it so real. So if you're comfortable, can you share with our listeners what that experience of someone, you know, at hospice at home passing looks like? Yeah. And really what I did here at home was to make the physical environment uh, as beautiful as possible. We peppered the house with candles that I actually, for some reason, started to make myself, maybe as a creative outlet. We brought in musicians because, our, uh, you know, as you, as you know from reading the book, I'm, music is a huge part of my life and a part of Amy and my life together. And we brought in musicians to play for her weekly. We had family come and really have an opportunity to spend some time with Amy. We had friends, close friends come over and sit around and 
have some really difficult but beautiful, beautiful conversations about their connection with Amy and what they might want to say to her, having come, you know, to visit her for the very last time. Amy, which is why we're here today, eight years later, (laughs) gifted writer, writes a New York Times modern love piece called You May Want to Marry My Husband, which five million people around the world end up reading. Yes. Set where she is in her journey to the end. And you've talked about how frail she was and her physical appearance. So even the idea that she had the strength to write this, it's astounding when you think about the timeline. So for those who don't know the backstory and haven't read the article, can you share the time and space where she was writing this and a bit about it? Yes. Yeah, sure. You know, Amy had one final project that she wanted to get done while she was in hospice. And I did not know what that was. I guess my daughter Paris knew. She told me just the other day, I didn't even know. But uh, (laughs) Paris knew that she wanted to write a modern love column, the focus of which was, was me. But I was posted up at my dining room table, which was my makeshift office, as it is again during this pandemic. And Amy was sitting across the room from me in the living room, trying to physically, you know, get through this last project. And she was heavily medicated and, of course, terminally ill. So it was really an astounding act, as you alluded to, just to get through it. But she did. And the piece was largely in the form of a personal ad, if you will, for me. Uh, I talked a little bit about us, but uh, it was an article extolling my virtues, etc. And at the end, she left a blank space for me to find love. Um, But as I said, I've used that blank space more as a metaphor to move forward in my life. And it was published on March 3rd of 2017, which was 10 days before Amy died. So she was unable to really, truly appreciate the unbelievable response that that essay received. It is the most beautiful, vivid, funny love letter. And I mean, the fact that 30 million women didn't write to you after you, know, <laughs> you making the smiley faces next to her coffee every morning with anything you could find from, you know, bananas and apples <laughs> and the, that you were a beautiful dresser and handsome and you loved music. I mean, she really brought you to life so vividly and beautifully. And, you know, I'm such a visual person and knowing that she was half her body weight and sort of in and out of that consciousness because she was so weak and fatigued that she was able to write that love letter to you, publish it in the New York Times and have it reach millions of people around the world. It's certainly a testament to what you spoke to earlier, which is, you know, her magnetism and big ideas. Yeah, it's not so true. I mean, it was so incredibly beautifully written. First of all, that was so clear, you know, a mix of, of, extreme sadness and humor and poignancy. It was nearly perfect. Do you have a favorite line from that letter? Is there one thing you remember reading? Well, I mean, I mean, I, what, what comes to mind is that uh, I want more time with Jason. I know she had more tattooed. <laughs> Where was the tattoo? On her uh, forearm. Yeah, and so initially wrote about wanting more with you and the kids. More time. Yeah. What do you remember about the day of her passing? Well, I remember uh, very clearly we were in, you know, the bed that we 
spent countless hours in and um, that she was, you know, spent her final days in. And uh, when I realized that she was no longer breathing, I walked down the hall and, and informed my children and then sort of got down to business, if you will. And, you know, I, I had a desire that I talk about in my TED Talk to myself remove her physically from this dream house that we built together. It was just something that I felt I needed to do. And so I did. I carried her downstairs and handed her off to the folks that took her um, out of our house for the very last time. You talk about, I imagine, the, the blur of it all. But the early days of losing Amy, and for you specifically, your story became very public. And so I'm curious about what it was like to grieve publicly versus your private within the walls of your home. It was, I imagine, a layered experience as your story and the story of her passing went viral around the world. Yes, and as I sort of put it, it was a layered experience, that's for sure. You know, and we're we're Jewish. And so one of the journalists I was talking to recently said that, you know, Jason, you really experienced a global shiva, which is <laughs> shiva is the is the period of of mourning after a person that's Jewish dies. And it's really true. But the truth is that even though I was thrust into the spotlight, those early days, weeks, and months were, like I said before, really sort of a blur. And I was unable to truly appreciate the incredible, incredible responses that I began to receive in the form of, you know, letters and tender pieces of artwork and trinkets and things like that. They just kept coming in and coming in and coming in. People who just wanted to reach out to me to not only share their own stories of loss, but to comfort me and my family during this unbelievably devastating time. It was a remarkable measure of what humans are capable of doing. There was also a fair amount of women taking Amy up on the offer to marry you. (laughs) What were some of the most entertaining letters, the ones that made you laugh out loud or the ones that just melted your heart a little bit maybe? It was a nice welcome break from the devastating grief. And one of them said, I will marry you when you are ready, provided you permanently stop drinking. No other conditions. I promise to outlive you and thank you very much. And it was like this, you know, beautifully designed, graphically designed email. And, you know, I I received really long handwritten letters of women extolling their virtues of being able to, you know, fix a car if it broke down or do this or that. And they were really, you know, we can laugh a little bit about them, but most of them were actually extraordinarily beautiful, you know, and really from the heart. So, did you keep them? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I kept them all. Mm-hmm. Where are they? I keep them in, you know, just like container store type storage crates. Gotta love the container store. <laughs> 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 the words brave and strong, and I have used this, and I'm more conscientious now when people are experiencing loss or trauma and saying, oh, she's just so strong. You're so strong. And there's a bit of a burden there, which you've talked about. I'm curious about those words and how you experienced everyone calling you brave and strong. Yeah, no, it's you're right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, early on, people would say to me, you know, you, you, 
I don't know, you're, you're brave, you do it with grace, things like that. And uh, again, it's okay. It's, it's all right. It's just, it's underlying all of that, especially at the beginning, you're sort of just taking one step at a time, one tiny step at a time, you know, and trying to get through each day. Grief is is a beast, you know, and it, it really socks you. And there really is no timetable for grief, as I think most of us know at this point. What is the right thing, if there is such a thing, to say or do when somebody experiences loss? Because my experience is that everybody is on the phone and texting, what should we do? What, you know, and or right. you see somebody in the grocery store and you don't know what to say. Your heart drops because what do I possibly say? Are there things that we can say or do that are the most helpful based on your experience? It's a good question. And I do spend some time in the book. My wife said, you may want to marry me talking about this. And, and a lot of people have really resonated with it because you're exactly correct. People just don't know what to say. And that happened to me many times. But the answer to your question, I think, is maybe over simple. And that is say something. You know, it's very, very unlikely that what you're going to say is going to be so offensive that you're going to lose a relationship. Okay. You know, like even as saying something as easy as, you know, I am so sorry. And I'm really thinking about you. You know how far that goes? It, it goes a long way. And some of my friends were just really natural at being able to do that. I, I tell a story in the book about a, a friend of ours who may not have known exactly what to say, but would text us and then just me song lyrics. You know, he was a big Grateful Dead fan. So he'd send me these beautiful lyrics and I know he was thinking about me. You know, that's a simple gesture. At what point do you begin to find joy and contentment? And as you said, there's no timeline for grief, but I'd love to hear about when you first remember experience moments of joy that I imagine in those early days are pretty hard to come by. They sure are. And, you know, I was lucky because I connected with a few people who had been through the loss of a spouse. And early on, he said to me, Jason, you will find joy. And I thought, what are you talking about? I just lost Amy. She's my life. I was with her for, you know, half my life. How am I ever going to find joy again? I'm so dark right now. But it was a good message because it kept me thinking. And it is true. It's just incredible what happens with with time. Time is a strange thing. And for me, it's centered again a little bit around music. You know, um, friends of mine encouraged me to go out and, and see a show or actually for the first time in, in, in a few decades, I would go to a concert by myself and I'd find myself dancing a little bit or smiling. And I was just like, wait a minute, is this okay? You know, but that's how it happens in baby steps and in small experiences where you find yourself shocked that you're actually able to smile and, and enjoy friends or family or whatever your interests are. Yeah, I read that you you guys loved Manchester Orchestra, who I love too. <laughs> so, is that right? I, Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, the album that came out in 2017 is really just so, it's just impactful on me in such a huge way. I don't know why specifically, but that 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 album really resonated with me. I love those guys. And, you know, everybody, I hope, will, who has not read the letter will, but I was just fascinated by you because you're a lawyer. So you have this vision of what it means to be a lawyer, yet you're an artist, you're passionate about music, you're cooking in the kitchen, you're <laughs> making smiley faces. 
faces out of fruit. And I'm like, this guy's a lawyer. <laughs> so this 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 sort of beautiful creativity, which I'm sure is is why you're so drawn to music. Thank you. You say so beautifully that Amy provided an empty space for you to fill with another love story, which I think is the ultimate act of love, the greatest act of love, selfless beyond measure. But that is complicated because you're finding new love while publicly grieving the loss of the love of your life. What is that balance? And it's a reality I think a lot of people face when they lose someone and then, you know, want to build a a new life and a new chapter. So I'm interested about is there a conflict in your head or guilt or, you know, how, how do you experience that time? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're right. It's really important for people to hear. Amy gave me that express permission and I wanted to pay it forward by giving people that permission as well and talking a little bit about the complexities. And for me, when I was ready, you know, I spoke to each one of my adult children. This may not be the case for everyone and explained to them that, you know, I may be ready to to start dating and stuff like that. And they were they were terrific. You know, I think you'll find if you start to talk to friends about it or family or your therapist, whoever's important in your life, that most people really just want you to be happy. And so, yeah, you know, 30 years out of the game, it was very, very confusing <laughs> at first. Um, I talk a little bit about, you know, the first couple of times I thought, wait a minute, was I really just like kind of flirting with that woman? Was she flirting with me, you know? Um, and it's confusing. You think that you're cheating on your spouse, even though they're not even here anymore. So all you can do is is tiptoe through it and 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 find your way. And you eventually found love in Claire and the in the blank space that Amy created for you. Can you tell me about meeting Claire? Well, I mean, I can tell you that I'm really blessed to be in a meaningful relationship, and she's terrific. And yeah, it, it's it's funny because. Even now, and she knows this, we've talked about it, speaking about the issue of dating someone new is still a little awkward and uncomfortable, even though here I am, the author who encourages people to, to get out there and do it, you know, but it's still it's still a little uncomfortable because uh, of, of many reasons, but mostly because of, you know, my family and my kids and yeah. stuff like that. And so, yeah, you know, I think I would just like to leave it at the fact that I I feel really, really lucky to be with her. And, you know, she's given me a lot and put up with a lot (laughs) in the process of me writing this book and, of course, of me speaking so publicly about my life with Amy. It's not easy. That is exactly what I thought. I thought of Claire because the idea of measuring up to somebody who is no longer there and speaking so openly about your love story as you two are falling in love I really wish you guys a beautiful second act love story because I do think that it probably can be hard on many levels. Thank you. As we get ready to close, how does Amy show up in the world for you and the kids today? Well, one of the unique things about our situation is that we have Amy in perpetuity in so many ways. You know, as you said before, she was such a gifted writer. So there's 35 children's books that we can continuously refer back to. 
I'm, I'm sure you saw in the news a, a few weeks ago where the uh, Save the Stories program, uh, Meghan Markle was reading uh, Baby Archie, Amy's book, and that was incredible. And so we have that work to look back at. We have her memoirs that are so incredible and will we'll live a long life. And we have her public speaking that's out there in perpetuity. She made a lot of short films that are available on YouTube. It's interesting when you when you live with someone who's that prolific creatively that there's so much to to look back on. So it's it's pretty easy to keep her in our thoughts. I'm so glad you brought up Meghan Markle because you know the research begins with the very basic typing your name into the Google bar as I dive in. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Meghan Markle kept popping up like in the right <laughs> and I'm like what are Jason and Meghan Markle? I swear I haven't <laughs> been on people.com in the past few weeks. <laughs> so when everyone type in Jason's name and you'll get a picture of Meghan and Archie. That's right. It was it was actually a beautiful moment. It it's really an was. amazing moment. I mean, yeah. her, her reach and her touch is, is remarkable. And mm-hmm. to your point that it lives on. Yeah. Which is, yeah. is the great thing about that body of work. So you talk a lot about this idea of a blank page and really challenging people to think deeply about their blank page. Will you explain that message to our listeners and and maybe almost a call to action about what you are encouraging people or asking of people when it comes to blank pages? Yeah, I think that sometimes, unfortunately for me specifically, it took the loss of, you know, my wife of 26 years, the, the mother of my three children, to get a little smack in the face there and realize that, you know, life is short. And that's really what I'm trying to emphasize when I say there is a blank page and to not wait, you know. But primarily what I mean is, you know, find something meaningful that you can do in your life as you continue to move forward because we just don't know what kind of time we have. And we don't want to have a lot of regrets, you know. And so for me, the challenge has been to do something meaningful in my professional life, to push myself creatively, like you said, to explore new things, to read new things, to study new things. And um, please find time to do that because it's so important. A dear friend, and when I read that message and you sharing that, said to me once when I was thinking about leaving a job that I was unhappy in, Mm -hmm. think of your life as a book and do you want all these chapters to be the same? And it just clicked that you really can create the next chapter and you, you sort of take a step back and realize you can write the chapters ahead. So when when I read your words, it it reminded me of that and reminded me of that conversation. So I, I think it's such an important message and I'm really grateful to you for sharing it and making people ask themselves those questions. Oh, thanks. And thanks for sharing that story. Yeah, that's great. All right. Well, thank you, Jason. As I said, this this comes full circle and I love that our world's intersected so many years after working with Amy and <laughs> Sweet Cougar. Yeah. And we like to end our interviews with a little something called rapid fire. And I'm going to throw out a question and then you just share what comes to mind. Okay. Favorite brand of socks? (laughs) Stance. Oh my gosh. I just bought my son the the floral, all the floral (laughs) patterns. 
So everybody, why I'm asking this is because I read that Jason is a connoisseur of socks. <laughs> Favorite meal to cook? Oh, goodness, that's a tough one. Um, I guess I have a Rosenthal, sort of not a marinade, but a uh, a way I cook a, a steak on the grill. So let's go with that. A ribeye. Love it. <laughs> How many tattoos and what are they? <laughs> I have one tattoo and it says AKR. Amy Krauss Rosenthal. <laughs> Best way to spend a Friday night? Pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, yes. <laughs> oh, and I miss it so much. It's such an easy answer. It's going to see live music. And it's just like, it's, I know it seems so silly in the scheme of of, of everyone's tremendous, tremendous loss, but you know, we all have our own losses during this period of time, and I really miss going to see music. The simple things we, we took for granted. Yeah. On that note, favorite song? Oh, goodness, I can't. Really? One favorite song? Manchester Orchestra. Pick your favorite. <laughs> the gold. What do you plan to do with your next blank page? What I plan to do with my next blank page, which is a current blank page, is to fill it. And I don't know what it's going to be. So stay tuned. I have no idea. We will. And I wish you and Claire and your three kids all the happiness and love in the world. Thank you so much for this opportunity to speak with you. It was great. So I'll link to your books and Amy's books, but tell us briefly about your book, where we can find it. Uh, it's called My Wife Said You May Want to Marry Me. And it's a book in three parts that we've touched on a lot here today. One is the a love story with Amy and raising my family. The second part is being with someone you love at the end of their life. And the third is my journey forward through uh, you know, a path of, of what I think is is resilience. Awesome. I'm going to link to the books, Amy's books, her um, Meghan Markle's favorite books, the dog book. <laughs> There's a lot of books okay, great, <laughs> to, great. to share. Thank you. It is a pleasure. I hope um, you come out of quarantine soon and find yourself at a live concert venue. <laughs> right back at you. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care, Jason. All right. Bye-bye. Our interview today supports, you guessed it, the Amy Krauss Rosenthal Foundation. Their mission as a nonprofit is to fund ovarian cancer research and promote childhood literacy. I will link to the many books we discussed in today's episode. Most importantly, Jason's book, My Wife Said You May Want to Marry Me. I hope you learned something new today. And as always, thank you for listening. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. Thanks for being a part of the All the Wiser podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, read our show notes, or get in touch with us at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at All the Wiser Podcast. Send us a note 
We would love to hear from you. And as always, thanks for listening. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.